Okay, um, so we're continuing with um, chapter three of part three of on the mode of existence of technical objects, uh, the last chapter of the book before the conclusion. Um, and so it's, we're looking at the relationship between philosophical thought and technical thought. Um, and um, uh, so this is the, the sort of second um, genesis that he's carrying out, um, the first one being the relationship between human beings and the natural world. And then in the second one, uh, it's the, the relationship of human beings to the human world. Um, so we, we had the, the uh, techniques of management of human beings, uh, and then the, the equivalent of religion is the social and political movements. Um, and then there's the, the processes of unification um, of, those, of that split. Uh, the same as we saw in the first um, uh, genetic process. Um, and then so he's going to position philosophy as the um, unification of all those unifications. Uh, so it's sort of the, the ultimate unification. Um, and we ended up with, um, um, where were we? Right, so he's uh, discussed this uh, this concept of culture, which he, he brought up in the introduction and then didn't really discuss much in the, in the rest of the book, but then now it's reappearing at the end um, and the way that um, philosophy has to um, work to ensure that culture remains contemporary with techniques so that, um, uh, and this is again something he, he mentioned in the, in the introduction, um, there's a, a certain tendency for culture to be um, anachronistic with respect to the techniques of its time. So um, there's like a, a culture is sort of stuck with old fashioned imagery and um, um, uh, concepts drawn from um, obsolete techniques. Um, whereas um, the role of philosophy is to ensure that um, that culture incorporates the the understanding of the functioning of contemporary techniques. So to develop that, um, what he calls a pure technology, so a, um, a study of the schemas of operation of uh, techniques, uh, contemporary techniques, that can be incorporated into culture. Uh, so that's more or less where we are, um, this idea of culture. Uh, and then we got to page 235, um, I think, we're towards the bottom of the paragraph beginning in the same way. So I can start reading. In the same way, one used to consider journeys as a means for acquiring culture because they constituted a mode of placing man into a situation. One should also consider the technical experiences of being placed into a situation with respect to an ensemble with effective responsibility as having cultural value. To put it another way, every human being should to a certain extent take part in technical ensembles, that is take on a responsibility a definite task with respect to such an ensemble and be connected with a network of universal techniques. Furthermore, individual man should not simply experience a single kind of technical ensemble, but rather a plurality of them, just as a traveler will have to encounter several peoples and experience their mores. So it's again the idea of culture. Um, I think this paragraph is fairly straightforward, um, but um, yeah, the idea um, that he mentioned in, in the, the previous paragraph where we ended last time um, the idea that uh, an understanding of a technical ensemble can only be uh, acquired through uh, being incorporated in it. You can't, um, you have to live an experience of uh, being in that technical ensemble. You can't just sort of have a, a theoretical um, external knowledge of it. 
Um, and then so he's suggesting in this in this paragraph that we just read um, that this um, we can compare this to the role of uh, travel um, in the human sphere. So you you acquire culture by traveling and um, experiencing the the different um, ways of life of different people around the world. Um, and in the same way, we should think of um, being incorporated into different technical ensembles as a way to acquire culture, uh, to um, have a have an understanding of the functioning of these different ensembles. I guess uh, he's not envisioning a kind of a technical tourism here. It's uh, that sounds more serious, right? Yes, I think this is um, uh, yeah more than more than a technical tourism in the sense that um, it, it's not just you know visit a, a nuclear power plant for a day and and, and watch the the turbines or whatever. Um, it's it's having an actual role in the process of uh, of the operation of that technical ensemble. Um, uh, so you would be I don't know for a year or uh, or maybe every every week once a week or something like that you would be part of the power plant and you would you know operate the plant and and uh, something like that. I, I don't know exactly what he's uh, picturing, but it's more uh, it's a real incorporation into the the functioning of the the technical ensemble and not just a, a sort of a visit. Well, but then I guess this would also bring into question uh, the relationship between uh, technique and labor. Uh, so in what kind of society would people have the opportunity uh, to have this kind of experience in which they would be able to switch from uh, technical media to media uh, without being uh, committed to a single line of work? Right. Yeah, that, I think that is an important question um, because he he doesn't really um, he just sort of says this would be desirable, but he doesn't really give any um, uh, explanation of of how we're supposed to get there or um, what sort of organization of society would be necessary in order to bring about this state. Um, and I think it, it, to me, it, it calls to mind um, you know the famous line from Marx about um, you know uh, was it hunting in the morning and fishing in the afternoon and doing criticism in the evening um, without being a hunter or a fisher or, or a critic, um, uh, which is presented as uh, um, sort of the, the ideal in a, a future communist society um, that would uh, not uh, assign human beings to particular spheres of work as, uh, as a sort of lifelong career, but would allow a, a free movement between different spheres of activity. Yeah, so that sort of calls to mind that same ideal, um, but in Simono, there's no um, there's no real explanation of how we're supposed to get there. Do we have to read it that universally? I mean, it could just be a matter of, you know, learning to repair your own car or learning to kind of fix the plumbing in your home, like things like that, different ensembles that would, would constitute you being kind of encultured into different sort of levels or uh, scales of uh, engineering and technology? Yeah, I think that, um, I don't think that's excluded, I would say. Um, like he does talk about, uh, um, I forget where exactly, but he talks about repairing um, electronics or, or repairing appliances as, uh, um, yeah, just having having that capacity to carry out repairs as, as, as being um, uh, part of a, a certain ethics of uh of technology, uh, or sorry, ethics of, of uh, the technical reality. Um, so you you have a, an appreciation for a technical object insofar as you 
understand its functioning and, and are capable of, of carrying out repairs and so on. Um, but it does sound here as though he's talking about something more uh, uh, more fundamental, I think, um, because he talks about um, uh, taking on a responsibility, a, a definite task with respect to such an ensemble. So it's, uh, it's not just, um, I don't think it's just that capacity to fix your car or something like that, but it's, you know, having a, uh, a responsibility within the system of uh, like at, in a the plant that manufactures cars or in a repair shop or something like that mm-hmm. um, it's it's that uh, being part of the functioning of the total system rather than just being able to repair the objects produced by the system that seems that seems to have like an implicit sort of appeal to scale though which like, I, I imagine like wasn't one of the examples that he gave of an ensemble uh, like a recording studio or something like that just seems more and I, I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I'm driving at here, but just that the that, that there's got to be some halfway space between these these sort of more grandiose societal ways in which we talk about culture with a capital C versus you know kind of everyday culture or something like that. Like I'm, I'm just reminded of some of the arguments around in cultural studies around what culture is, right, and that it it needn't have this sort of grand sort of scale. Yeah, I think he did give um, a recording studio as an example um, of a. Uh, um... Uh, I forget actually which term he used, if he, if it was ensemble or not. Um, but uh, like the recording studio as a um, you know a, an interaction between you know microphones and and speakers and you know other uh, technical objects that have to be connected in a certain way. Um, um, but in this chapter, when he's talking about ensembles, he seems to have in mind. Um, uh, like he talks about the, the way that the ensembles are integrated into the, the natural world, um, into the geography of the world. Um, so think, he's talking about things like um, the electrical network, um, which, you know, has to operate in certain key points, uh, whether it's a, a dam on a river um, and then the, the power lines following a, a certain um, uh, line on the on the map of the world. Um, um, so there there's a, a much, I think, uh, in this chapter, at least, maybe not in other parts of the book, but uh, here I think he's thinking of much bigger scale um, systems when he talks about technical ensembles. Yeah, that's totally fair. I was playing catch up last week, so I'm probably just missing the missing the background context a little bit. Right, yeah, so the, the this, this notion of uh, technical ensemble, um, he he um, understands it as so insofar as uh, technics is at the level of a technical ensemble. Um, it, it is incorporated into the natural world uh, and forms a, a network structure like the magical universe. Um, so it, it consists of key points um, like the, the dam or the, uh, the coal mine or whatever, things that have to be in a certain place. Uh, and and uh, the network is structured around these places, um, these key points. Um, and uh, so it integrates the human world into the natural world. Um, so that's um, uh, sort of what he has in mind in the background um, when he talks about these technical ensembles. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's it's something like this type of uh, network that he um, that he says we can't really grasp just from the exterior, um, just by looking at it, but only through uh, living in it, uh, being part of that network. Uh, that's how we acquire an adequate grasp of it. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph, which should um, clarify a little bit more what exactly this um, 
experience of different technical ensembles uh, looks like, if someone else would like to read. However, this kind of experience must be conceived more as a way of experiencing the situating of each type of techniques and ensemble of techniques than as an effort to participate in the condition of man in each of the techniques. For in each techniques, there are technicians, unskilled laborers, yeah. workers, managers, and to the extent that conditions are strictly social, they can be rather analogous at each level in the different techniques. It is the particular situating in the technical network that must be experienced, insofar as it places man in the presence of and within a series of actions and processes that he does not direct alone, but in which he participates. The philosopher, comparable in this role to the artist, can help in raising awareness of the situation within the technical ensemble by reflecting it within himself and by expressing it. But again, just as the artist, all he can do is be the one who solicits an intuition in others. Once a definite sensitivity has been awakened and allows the grasping of the sense of a real experience. Right, so here he does, um, there's a, some um, uh, mention of the, the sort of social integration of uh, human beings in the technical ensemble. So he talks about the different uh, roles that, that workers can have in relation to a technical ensemble, um, um, but uh, so he he thinks that we can sort of get past this social division um, um, and look at the way that the technical ensemble incorporates the human being um, uh, in relation to um, these processes and actions that the human being participates in. So it's not so much. Um, what role you have within the the company or or the the factory hierarchy or whatever it is um it's what sorts of processes are are being carried out in this operation uh, uh, in this functioning of the technical system um and uh and the human being uh, participates in those operations um and then he goes on to say that the the role of the philosopher um, has to, um, it comes as a secondary step. Uh, it, it comes after the, um, the sensibility ha has already um, been awakened. So there, there's this experience within the technical network um, that, that uh, or the technical ensemble that uh, certain people undergo this experience. Um, and then the philosopher afterwards can um, sort of uh, bring bring that experience to light um, and incorporate it into culture, um, but it's the it's always afterwards after the experience has already um, come about independently of the philosopher. This is, again, I think, um, uh, is connected to the metaphilosophical question that we've been um, discussing the last few weeks um, about whether uh, the role of philosophy for Simondon is um, a retroactive or, or retrospective uh, type of uh, action. Um, uh, so here, here he's, uh, this seems to confirm that, that it is uh, a sort of retroactive action. So philosophy comes on the scene after uh, these different genetic processes have already been carried out. Um, and it sort of repeats them in, in these genetic processes in thought, um, which allows to uh, incorporate them into culture. Um, but then there are other places where he seems to 
presents um, uh, a sort of simultaneous or uh, um, uh, conception of philosophy where um, the, the genesis that philosophy carries out in thought is identical with the, the genetic process itself. It's not a, a reflection of it that appears after, after the fact. Um, so there's a sort of tension, I think, between these two different metaphilosophical accounts. Um, uh, but here we see a, a, um, one side of that uh, being privileged. All right, let's go on to the next paragraph. Someone else would like to read? However, we must note that art as means of expression and its awakening of the cultural awareness of technical ensembles is limited. Art goes through aesthesis and is therefore naturally inclined to grasp the object, tool, instrument, or machine. But true technicity, that which can be integrated into culture, is not in the manifest. All the prestigious color photographs of sparks, of fumes, all the recordings of noise, sounds, or images generally remain a use, exploitation of technical reality and not a revelation of this reality. Technical reality must be thought and even known through participation in its schemas of action. Aesthetic feeling can emerge, but only after this intervention of real intuition and participation, and not as a fruit of a mere spectacle. Every technical spectacle remains puerile and incomplete if it is not preceded by the integration into the technical ensemble. This paragraph, I think, is a sort of an aside, um, just in, because he brought up the role of um, art in the, the last paragraph. He's here um, indicating the limitations of art um, as a way of grasping technical reality. He thinks that um, that art um, is, is only... Um, it, it can use uh, technical reality, but it can't... Um, uh, uh, reveal that reality to us. It, it doesn't, um, you know, just by taking pictures of uh, of a, a steam engine or or whatever um, that they might have aesthetic value. They might be beautiful pictures, um, but they don't um, reveal the technical reality itself, which can only be revealed through uh, this participation in the process um, um, in, by by acting in it. Um, and then, and then through thoughts that captures those schemas of action. Are we being discreet about the possible relation of this paragraph to uh, your handle? <laughs> right. Yeah. He, uh, he there. The word manifest uh, does come up. Um, let me just check the French to see what it is. Oh yeah, it's le manifesté. So yeah, that, that's a good uh, a good translation. Yeah, so technical reality is uh, the non-manifest in this uh, in this paragraph. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. That one, there isn't too much to uh, discuss, I don't think. Um, if someone else would like to read. Uh, the intuitions of technical participation, however, are not opposed to the forces and qualities of religious and social and political thought. Social and political thought is continuous with respect to religious thought when it is not an actual and already realized totality, properly speaking, for totality is what it is, it is an absolute and cannot push toward action, but instead is the latency of broader ensembles undergirding actual structures, and the validity of this announcement of new structures. Social and political thought expresses the relation of totality with respect to the part, of virtual totality with respect to the actual part. It expresses the function of relative totality, whereas religions uh, express the function of absolute totality, and it expresses the function of virtual totality 
whereas religions express the function of actual totality. And yet there can be a complementary relation between the intuitions of integration into technical ensembles and social and political intuitions, because technical intuitions express the result of history and of the conditioning of life of the Hicket Nunc, whereas the social and political intuitions are a project going toward the future, the active expression of potentials. Social and political thought are the expression of tendencies and forces that exceed all actual given structure. The intuitions relating to technical ensembles express what humanity has done, what is done, and what is structured, because done, accomplished. Figural power can thus remain invested in techniques and ground power in social and political thought, insofar as figural reality is when what is is what is given in the system of actuality, whereas ground power contains potentials and keeps the becoming in reserve. While impossible at the level of the relation between elementary technical objectivity and universal religious thought, the relation once more becomes possible when it establishes itself between technical ensembles, which is the expression of actuality, and social and political thought, which is the expression of virtuality. There is a compatibility between actuality and virtuality through the real coming into being, whose meaning, sens, is stretched taught is stretched taut between this actuality and this virtuality. Philosophical thought grasps the correlation between actuality and virtuality, and it maintains it by establishing the coherence of this relation. All right, so here we have a, a new opposition that hasn't really appeared in the previous um, stages of the genetic process that we've seen. So we have this opposition between the actual and the virtual. Uh, so the, the relationship or the distinction between um, religious thought and uh, political social thought has to do with the the type of totality whether it's actual or virtual so in religious thought it's um, an absolute totality which is actual um, so it, um, religious thought has to do with um, uh, an actual totality um, whereas uh, political and social thought has to do with a virtual totality um, so something that uh, is is supposed to appear in the future and um, uh, and then this um, this notion of, of virtuality uh, or, or, or this opposition between actual and virtual is what um, allows for uh, the conjunction of, of the intuitions related to um, the technical ensemble, uh, incorporation within the technical ensemble, and the social and political thoughts. Um, so it's because... Um, because social and political thoughts have to do with virtual totality that they can um, capture that uh, ground reality um, that that is characteristic of the the religion side of the split um, so they they um, the the technical ensemble is the figure side and then the the social and political thought is the ground side uh, that um, that maintains that sense of uh, dynamism or that allows for uh, transformation to appear into the future. Um, some of uh, the parts in this paragraph reminds me of the relation he makes, uh, he establishes between uh, the, a pre-individual charge and uh, the trans-individual level uh, as the mediation between individual and the collective in the other book individuation work uh, because the pre-individual charge what he calls pre-individual charge also uh, sounds to contain these potentials 
or that are capable of being prolonged in various directions. Right. I think it's the same um, conceptual schema that he's operating with in both um, both this work and the other work. Um, so there's uh, uh, the pre-individual reality, the process of individuation, uh, but then the the uh, individuated uh, entity that results from the process of individuation is uh, has this sort of complementary. It doesn't the individuation doesn't exhaust the pre-individual reality. So there's this uh, remnant of of the pre-individual reality, um, which is what allows for further uh, individuation processes. And so there's always this ground reality that's left behind that uh, is um, affords the possibility of, of future transformations. And uh, and so yeah, it's that, that same sort of conceptual schema is at work in both books. Uh, but I also think the, the symmetry, this uh, complementarity, might give perhaps a narrow idea of his idea of techniques, or let's say, because his idea of techniques or technical ensembles also contains uh, some possible uh, indeterminacy. Uh, I think he talks about indeterminacy in relation to information. Information requires some level of indeterminacy although it is not random. So it, it still accommodates some sort of something akin to virtuality, although he doesn't seem to use the word virtual uh, in that context. Right, yeah. So he, he does, he, he brings up the idea that in order for a system to be capable of receiving information, it has to have a certain openness to it. It can't, um, so like, a, say, a, a clock that operates on a, a mechanism um, it can't receive information because all of its functioning is is determined by the the operation of the mechanism. Um, but then, um, uh, I don't know, say like a, a radio receiver, um, it's capable of receiving information um, because it, it has a certain openness to uh, to possibility. Um, so even these technical ensembles that he's describing are are much more. Um, uh, they have much more, I guess, internal structure than, say, a radio receiver would, um, but uh, there's still um, that openness within them uh, insofar as they, uh, you know, incorporate information uh, that that is received from external sources. So yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if he would use the word virtuality for that for that type of openness. I think he might describe it using the the vocabulary of potentials rather than virtual uh, virtual. Or virtuality, but I'm not sure. And then this last sentence of the of that paragraph is um, a little bit enigmatic, I would say. So um, he says, uh, uh, "Sorry, let me find it in English." Philosophical thought grasps the correlation between actuality and virtuality, and it maintains it by establishing the coherence of this relation. So there's this the relationship between actuality and virtuality. Um, the the contrast between the the actuality of the technical ensemble and the virtuality of the social and political thought, uh, and then philosophy. It, it's not clear exactly how it's supposed to do this, but philosophy, in some way, can institute the coherence of this relation. So, uh, some some somehow, what philosophy does um, makes this relationship between the actual and the virtual possible. Uh, but it's not clear to me exactly how that's supposed to come about. I know. I. I take this in a limited sense because uh, in the rest he talks about philosophy uh, somehow mediating between the technical ensemble and sociopolitical thought uh, instead of uh, perhaps directly mediating 
the first level technicity and religion. Perhaps insofar as it can do that, uh, it's a mediation between actuality and virtuality as that as well. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I think what he's pointing to here is that philosophy is supposed to play a role of mediating between the technical ensemble uh, and this experience of the technical ensemble and the social and political thoughts. But what I'm not sure about is how. So it seems, I guess, there's two different possibilities um, uh, of what that mediation looks like. Is either there's a, a sort of pre-existing um, compatibility um, of the technical ensemble and the social political thought, and then philosophy just grasps that uh, pre-existing compatibility, or that philosophy has an active role in bringing about that compatibility. Hmm. And this sentence, this last sentence, seems to um, point to the second possibility. So it, it would, philosophy would have an active role in in bringing about the compatibility between the technical ensemble, uh, the actual technical ensemble, and the virtual social and political thought. Um, but it's not clear to me how exactly philosophy is supposed to play that role of, of bringing it about. Yeah, I, I see your point. Uh, he, I think he create, he tends to credit philosophy uh, with some really important powers. Let's say. Yeah, the the classic philosophical move of uh, arguing that philosophy is the most important thing in the world. Um, yeah, so it's a, a popular idea among philosophers. I mean, either way, there's a function, right, of making coherent the relationship. Somehow, this sense, this meaning, requires some kind of work. Yeah, I think um, I think the word sense here. Um, Sorry, let me find it in English. Yeah, they, they translate as meaning, but I think direction would probably be better here. Uh, well, direction doesn't actually work 100% either. But yeah, it has the idea of uh, something that's pointing towards uh, the future. So when he talks about being stretched, so actuality is uh, directed towards the future or, or the this mediating role of uh, philosophy um, in, in grasping this uh, compatibility is uh, it's sort of pointing towards the future. Yeah, but it, it, it's something that, um, as, as he's laying it out here, it's something that requires um, an elaboration of thought or, or um, a working through, some, a working through the, the relationship in order to grasp this compatibility. Um, it's not something that's sort of immediately given. Is it like produced? Yeah, I think that's the um, the same question as what I was uh, bringing up earlier. Is it, so it's the, the question is whether um, does philosophy have a, a passive role of um, sort of recognizing a pre-existing compatibility between these two spheres, or does philosophy have an active role of bringing about that compatibility? And it does sound like he's um, he's leaning towards the second option that philosophy brings about the compatibility between the technical ensemble and the um, social and political thought. So these, these two spheres would appear um, independently, and then philosophy has the role of bringing about that compatibility between them. The, the, the word task uh, starts to appear pretty often uh, in this chapter, I think. We'll see further instances of that. Uh, so where did he where did he use task in this uh, in this paragraph we just read? I I don't think he uses it, but uh, it is kind of implied uh, as I see it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, he, he's he's describing a sort of task of philosophy or a vocation of philosophy, um, and I think um, 
this also has to do maybe with the idea of normativity um, that has come up a couple times in this chapter as well, or uh, in this part of the book as well. So the the idea that um, there's a certain uh, there are there are norms that structure um, the relationship of human beings to uh, technical reality. Yeah. So uh, a, a task is a I think essentially normative um, in the sense of you know talking about the task of philosophy as something that um, is a, a normative concept. Okay. So we can go on to the next paragraph, and I can read. It is thus the sense sense of coming into being. The ability of techniques to engender the coming into being of both the natural and the human world that makes elementary intuition and the intuition of the ensemble compatible. Technical intuition at the level of ensembles expresses coming into being as both basis and result obtained. Social and political intuition is the integration of tendencies, the expression of virtualities and forces of coming into being in the same reality. At the level of technical thought attached to tools and of universalizing religious thought, there cannot be any direct encounter between the two types of thought because the mediation of coming into being is not possible. Each tool, each separate technique that is capable of manipulating tools present themselves as stable and definitive. Universalizing religious thought also presents itself as stable and definitive with reference to an atemporal ground. Conversely, the introduction of technicity to ensembles which situate man as organizer or as element makes techniques evolve to the same extent and at the same time the evolving aspect of human groups becomes conscious and this consciousness creates social political thought. Both born from coming into being, one expressing the definite past serving as its basis and the other the possible future serving as its goal. The technical thought of ensembles and social and political thought are coupled through their conditions of origin and their points of integration into the world. So he's again expressing um, the, the, or he's arguing that this unification um, can't come about at the level of the individual tool or the individual technical object um, and um, religion as uh, the universal. It's only through uh, the development of technology or uh, sorry, of technical reality into um, technical ensembles. Uh, it's only when technics has, has reached the level of uh, operating at uh, technical ensembles and um, and then social and political thought takes the place of uh, of religion, then that you can uh, carry out this correlation or this um, compatibility between the two spheres. The word stable uh, is interesting. It is used as something which uh, blocks uh, change or becoming. It evokes the idea of metastability, which could perhaps be in the background here. Yeah, you always contrast uh, stability, uh, properly speaking, with metastability, um, and, and the difference being that metastability is a, a relative stability that contains potentials for further uh, transformation, as opposed to stability, which is uh, just static. And so here he, he describes, um, so where is it? Each tool, each separate technique that is capable of manipulating tools present themselves as stable and definitive. So the the... Uh, the techniques that remains at the level of the tool or the te technical object is it doesn't have that power of transformation within itself in the way that uh, techniques at the level of the ensemble does. Uh, in the, the next, not the next sentence, but the sentence after, it says, conversely, the introduction of technicity to ensembles which situate man as organizer or as element makes techniques evolve. So here we have a, a new, uh, once technique re reaches this stage of the ensemble, it, uh, it has this principle of transformation within itself. 
um, rather than just being something stable um, and sort of given. Yeah, the, the part right after the passage you read is also interesting. The, to the same extent, at the same time, it looks perhaps insignificant, but it sounds like a strong claim for this profound communication between the rhythms of their evolution, between uh, the becoming conscious of uh, human groups, uh, which creates social political thought, and uh, the evolution of techniques. It's like uh, they are coupled really tightly here. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, this whole uh, portion of the book is, is carried out at, at the level of a, a sort of a genetic process, which is not uh, sort of directly tied to history. But I think if we look at the historical reality of the developments, you can, you can situate the, the introduction of these social and political ideologies, you know, in the 19th century, you know, as the, the period when when different social and political ideologies start to become uh, mass movements that have a, a real impact on society. And uh, uh, at the same time, you have the development of, uh, for example, railway networks, you know, telegraph networks, you know, the, this, this uh, introduction of the technicity at the level of the ensemble rather than at the level of the, uh, of the individual. And there, there is a direct relationship, you know, between those two spheres, uh, like a causal relationship in the sense that, uh, you know, having a telegraph network, of course, makes it possible to um, organize a political movement across a whole, um, a whole political uh, body. Um, whereas, you know, before the introduction of this network, that type of organization would not be possible. Um, so there, there's definitely a causal relationship um, but uh, what he's pointing to here is not uh, directly um, tied to that causal relationship. But um, I, I do think that it's what he's describing here has some historical validity as well. Yeah, it is. It seems like a reciprocal uh, action, reciprocal causality scheme working between them. Right. So um, the other direction of the causality is um, a little bit harder to, I think, identify historically. So to what extent do the political ideologies have an impact on the technical network uh, or the technical ensemble? Um, I think that's something that maybe is uh, appears later. Um, like in the 20th century, you have uh, the role of different political ideologies uh, structuring the, the creation of a technical network. I'm thinking of like the Soviet Union, for example. Of course, you have a political ideology that uh, you know carries out a, a massive tech, uh, transformation of the technical um, system of the of the country. Um, but maybe I'm, I'm not sure uh, in the 19th century whether it's possible to um, to see the same level of, of um, uh, causality operating in that direction from the ideology uh, to the the technical ensemble, um, but maybe there's other examples that I'm not thinking of. All right, so we can go on to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. Thus, it is within the perspective of permanent change within technical and social political structures that technical thought and social political thought can coincide. Elementary technicity, the one that animates the thought of artisans and religiosity with a universal basis, the one that is contemporary with the first development of techniques can serve as paradigm for thinking the coming into the being of technical ensembles and for thinking the coming into being of totalities. 
without the norm of elementary techniques and that of universal religiosity, the technical thought of ensembles in a process of coming into being and the social and political thought of evolving communities would lose their reciprocal tension. The thought of technical ensembles needs to be inspired by that of elements and that of the coming into being of the human world by the function of totality in order for these two forms of thought, which must meet analogically, but which must not be confused with each other, to preserve their autonomy and not enslave one another. Because the functional totality of thought coming from the primitive relation with the world must be maintained by the real bipolarity of the primitive phase shifts results. Culture is directed by this bipolarity, it develops between technical thought and religious thought. It is culture that links the lived understanding of the technicity of ensembles with that of the human groups represented in social political thought. So he's pointing here to the this um, uh, reciprocal tension between um, the, the coming into being of um, technical ensembles and the coming into being of of um, political, of um, social organization. So he argues that this tension is necessary, and there has to be this tension um, in order to preserve the, the bipolarity of uh, the original uh, magical universe or, or the, the basic relationship of human beings to the world. And it's, that bipolarity can only be preserved insofar as, um, as there is this uh, inspiration from so technical thought at the level of the ensemble needs to be inspired by technical thought at the level of the elements, um, and then likewise um, or conversely, uh, social and political thought has to be inspired by the the function of totality in religious thought, and it's only when those two uh, conditions are met that the reciprocal tension uh, between the two spheres is uh, is maintained. So that without without that inspiration on both sides then the tension will disappear uh, i think this belongs to uh, a series that's the imagination of uh, illegitimate uh, relations between culture no, not culture techniques and uh, religion and its later offshoots uh, earlier i think there was another example well, yeah the, i think the a passage that opened this chapter, uh, it was talking about the techniques of the human and how the techniques of the human uh, can uh, flip into a politics and the other way around, and this constitutes some sort of false dialogue. This is perhaps even worse than a false dialogue, the, the danger of one enslaving the other. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the term uh, enslave is a, a pretty strong term. Um, let me just see what the French is quickly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the, the translation enslave each other, that's a perfectly accurate translation, um, uh, or enslave one another, sorry. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the the instance here of this illegitimate relation, as you pointed out, um, so there was uh, the earlier one um, that uh, this sort of false connection uh, or false uh, sort of a premature unification of uh, 
the human technics and the political and social movements where they sort of turn into one another. That was one sort of illegitimate way of producing a unification. Uh, and then here he's pointing to another illegitimate way of doing that same unification um, where one side would enslave the other. Yeah, so I'm not sure what exactly the relationship is between these different moments uh, uh, or these different illegitimate uh, unifications, but yeah, this one does seem to be even worse than the uh, the previous one. I think it's also worth pointing out um, when he, he talks about this, um, how these two forms of thought must meet analogically, and so this uh, this role, this word analogy, is uh, is always a, a sort of a key word for him um, or a code word for uh, transductive thought. Like he describes transductive thought as um, what is valid in analogical thinking. Um, and uh, we saw earlier in this part of the book, I can't remember exactly where, um, the how he, he thinks of analogy um, more more formally as, as um, a relationship of relations. So within, uh, when, when you're making an analogy between two um, spheres two, uh, or two entities, um, you're pointing to the relationship between the those two entities in in so far as they each contain a relationship between ground and figure. So the relationship between ground and figure in one reality is uh, analogous to the relationship between ground and, and figure in the other reality. Um, so that's uh, the sort of formal picture of what analogy looks like uh, for him. So that's the the same type of uh, operation is at work. Uh, in this passage, I think he, he just sort of uses the word analogy in passing, but I think that's the same. He, he has that same picture in mind uh, in the background. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. The past, that is the first forms of technical thought and of religious thought, at the level of the first splitting in two of magical thought, as well as aesthetic activity placed at the neutral point of this first split, must be preserved as cultural content that is, as a foundation for, for providing the norms for current thought, but it is only as cultural content that they must be preserved. It would be a transgression for, against coming into being to want to substitute the representation of elements, tools or instruments for that of the current technicity of ensembles. For technicity, in its current lived reality, no longer simply resides at the level of elements, but also, and essentially, at the level of ensembles. Today, ensembles are depositories of technicity in the same way that the fragmentation into elements had been prior to this. Thought must start from the knowledge of the technicity of elements, restrained in the past, in order to grasp the technicity of ensembles in their reality, for it effectively results from it. Thought must go from the cultural to the actual in order to understand the actual in its reality. Furthermore, religious thought is a permanent reminder of the sense of totality, and culture must renew the rootedness of sociopolitical thought in universalized religious thought, proceeding from the cultural to the virtual in order to grasp and promote the virtual in its value. Uh, so there is again the same uh, this same thought that he has expressed a couple of times um, that. Um, uh, because technicity in in contemporary life resides at the level of the ensemble, that uh, culture has to grasp technical reality at the level of the ensemble. Um, so there's technical reality at the level of the elements is uh, is um, a sort of um, 
heritage of the earlier stages, which is still maintained in culture. Um, but then what the, the, the current task is uh, for uh, philosophical thought is to incorporate contemporary technical uh, reality at the level of the ensemble into culture. So he has to, um, where is it? has to proceed from the cultural to the actual in order to understand the actual in its reality. And then on the other side of the split, uh, religious thought serves as, uh, as he puts it, the permanent reminder of the sense of totality. Social political thought has to, um, has to always be sort of um, reminded of this function of totality. Uh, and so the cultural has to proceed to the virtual. Um, so the virtual being um, the, the role of the social and political thought uh, pointing towards the future in order to grasp and promote the virtual in its value. So the virtual has a, uh, a value and then the, uh, the actual has a reality. Um, so that's the, the sort of conjunction of those concepts. And I think with the concept of, the, of value, we can tie this back again to what we were discussing earlier about normativity, because value is an inherently normative concept as well. Um, so there's a, um, yeah, just a, another instance of uh, a normative concept being introduced here uh, in this third part of the book. I, I am reminded that, uh, again, perhaps in uh, these readings uh, of Simondon's relationship to Kangian, Kangian was, I think, uh, he was a self-declared, self-proclaimed philosopher of value. He, he really took it really far uh, in terms of thinking the living being uh, in terms of value, as a center of value. Yeah, I know very little about uh, Kangian, so I can't really uh, comment on that. But I, I remember that uh, this book is actually dedicated to Kangian, if I'm not mistaken. And there are even... Weirder, if I may say so, inventions in the other work about this value business. Uh, he, he coins a word uh, called axiontology, I think, like val value ontology. Right. Uh, um, I don't remember if he used that word, but he definitely talks about an axiology, um, like a, a science of values, which I think we saw also in one of the articles that we read months ago. Um, I can forget which one exactly. Um, but yeah, sorry, I, I just checked the, uh, the acknowledgements. And yeah, there is an acknowledgement for, um, to Kongiem for, um, for lending him a number of rare works written in German from his own personal library. So, um, uh, oh, yeah, and there's a mention. Uh, so it says, moreover, it was thanks to all of Monsieur Kongiem's helpful remarks that I was finally able to discover the definitive form of this work. The third part of the present work owes a great deal to his suggestions. So it's that third part in particular that he uh, he um, ties to Kangiyam. You mean this part? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I I, um, I didn't remember that he he had pointed to the third part in particular as as being connected to to Kangiyam's work. Um, um, but yeah, that would be interesting to try to follow up as well. Uh, so I think we can go on to the next um, paragraph if someone else would like to read. Now, the non-cultural in technics is the uniqueness of each determinate technics, tending to impose its norms, schemas, and particular vocabulary. Technics, in order to be grasped in their real essence, which alone is cultural, must be presented and experienced as a cluster, facio, of plurality. This plurality is a part of the technical condition, which grasps the elements. Religious thought, inversely, must be seized as unconditional unity in itself, 
what is contrary to culture in religions is their possible plurality, which is to say the confrontation of determinate religious traditions. And yet, since religions as traditions are necessarily rooted, culture must create a superstructure on the basis of which the different religions appear in their unity as religions. It is the meaning sense of ecumenism, which is the condition of the integration of religions into culture, the condition of religions of fecundity in the direction sense of culture. It is perhaps uncertain whether there really can be open religions or whether the opposition between closed religions and open religions is as clear as the one Bergson establishes. But the openness of religion is a function that is common to different religions, each to a certain extent closed in on itself. I'll just jump to this next one. It was hardly possible for ecumenism to be constructed in a distant past, for it can constitute itself only by means of a reflexive thinking, wanting to ground culture. It is essentially an in itself philosophical work. It necessitates becoming aware of the deep sense of religions, which can occur only by resituating them within the coming into being of thought on the basis of primitive magic. To this day, limited ecumenisms, as within Christianity, have arisen, but it is a universal ecumenism that philosophical reflection must develop so that religious reality integrates itself into culture. So we have this, uh, this role of ecumenism that um, he introduced earlier in this part of the book, um, I think sort of in passing, um, but then he's developing it more here. And uh, so there's a contrast between um, the, the integration of techniques into culture and the integration of religion into culture. Um, so techniques are what they have, what is essentially cultural or, or what can be incorporated into culture from techniques is a, is a plurality. He, he describes it as a, a cluster of a plurality. Um, you could also say a bundle of plurality. And um, on the other hand, uh, in religion, uh, the, the plurality has to be sort of purified out of religion. And uh, there has to be this uh, uh, universal religion has to be generated by philosophical thought in order for uh, religion to be incorporated into culture. Um, so technical thought uh, or a technical reality has to be purified into its plurality of different schemas of operation. Whereas religious reality has to be purified into a unity that overcomes the plurality of different religious traditions uh, in, in order to be incorporated into culture. Um, he, he uses these figures of the remainder, if I may call them, uh, in a really interesting way. Uh, so here he starts this paragraph uh, ref by referring to uh, the non-cultural uh, in techniques, uh, like what is not easily assimilable by techniques uh, in culture. And earlier, uh, he had done a very similar thing with the non-technical in, uh, let's say, as the natural and spontaneous human element. So there is a non-cultural in techniques and perhaps a non-cultural in religion. So he seems to think in these uh, patterns. Yeah, I think we can maybe draw a connection with what we, <clears throat> what we were discussing earlier about um, the, the, the sort of formal structure of, of this individuation process, which always has a remainder, like the pre-individual, um, there's an, a process of individuation, and then there, the pre-individual, the, the remainder of the pre-individual within uh, and in, in the environment of the individual. So any, any of these processes of uh, genesis that he's talking about or, or coming into being, there's always a, a remainder which doesn't undergo the process or which, which is uh, left behind 
uh, by the process. Um, and I think uh, I think that might be what he's uh, getting at when he talks about this, the non-cultural and technics um, and, uh, you know, the, the the other example that you brought up, um, the, the sort of what's left behind by the, the human techniques, for example. But, but it seems to the earlier passage we encountered today about uh, philosophy mediating between actuality and virtuality may also uh, be relevant here. Maybe uh, it is here uh, through its work in bringing about uh, ecumenism and also in bringing about a technology that can somehow uh, do that mediation. I think that's a good suggestion. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, so it's it's by by this uh, this role of uh, sort of purifying each of the two sides um, that philosophy is capable is capable of uh, performing that mediation and making the two sides compatible with each other. By the way, uh, this passage uh, which talks about this uh, unifying uh, the plurality of religions, uh, it's. Uh, it sounds like science fiction. Uh, there are examples of this in science fiction. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin has, uh, uh, has an imaginary future civilization called the Ecumen, and, uh, and Octavia Butler uh, has this religion called Earth Seed, a religion of change. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know those examples. Um, um, what, what it called to mind for me was um, there's a certain... Um, tradition called uh, perennialism, which um, it had to do with uh, a sort of universal mysticism, um, like um, uh, people that that tried to um, sort of uncover uh, a sort of um, a hidden core of mysticism within all the different historical religions that would be the same. Um, uh, so sort of stripping away the historical particularity of, of each religion and uh, grasping a, a, a mystical core, which would be the same in all the religions. Yeah, so I don't know if something along those lines might be something he's thinking of. Um, but uh, yeah, we can also think of, um, you know, modern, uh, I don't know if it existed at, at the time that he was writing, but you know, people describe themselves as, as spiritual rather than religious um, and, and sort of you know, pick and choose different elements of, of religious practices that appeal to them. I'm not sure if uh, something like that um, might fit what he's describing as ecumenism. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, spirituality, it, it sounds like a dilution to the point of inexistence. Ecumenism sounds more substantial, at least. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a, a wide range of... Uh, you know what what it can mean to describe yourself as spiritual um and uh in terms of how much meaning that actually has in a person's life and and uh and things like that um um but yeah ecumenism seems to be uh something that uh has a more more of a rootedness in historical religion um so it, it's uh ecumenism would, would be something that is um brought about by negotiations between different churches or different uh, religious groups um, as historical realities rather than uh, an individual um, sort of selecting uh, various elements of religions that they you know want to pick up or or whatever so yeah I think I think I think it's that rootedness in historical reality and in a, a particular religious tradition is is what differentiates the two 
there, there is the thing with Gaia, people like Latour are talking about. Uh, I don't know whether they really mean it like a goddess, but it is there as a gift. Yeah, I haven't read any of Latour's uh, Gaia stuff. I, I don't know how uh, how seriously he takes. I can never tell with him how seriously he takes anything that he says. Uh, it's uh, kind of uh, mystifying to me. But yeah, okay. So I think we can uh, go on to the next paragraph. Uh, I can read: the institution of a technology has the same signification as that of ecumenism, but its consequence is making one grasp the true elementary particularity of technical objects on the basis of a general normalization of the common vocabulary and notions, replacing the false specificity of trade terms caused by use and not by the essence proper to the elements. Technology is that on the basis of which the plurality of technical objects, which is the depository of primitive techniques, serves as the basis for the constitution of technical ensembles. Ecumenism is that on the basis of which the universalizing un the unicity of religious thought, which is the depository of the function of primitive totality, uh, serves as a basis for social political thought. Technology accomplishes on the basis of plurality, a conversion toward unity, whereas ecumenism, first of all grasping unity, accomplishes or allows for the accomplishment of a possible conversion toward a plurality of social and political integration. The consciousness grasping, sorry, the conscious grasping of this function of plurality and of the function of unity are necessary as a basis so that mediation at the level of this encounter between the status of plurality and the status of superiority with respect to unity that is realized by the structure of articulation can be possible at the neutral point of the coming into being of thought. So he's here characterizing the role of uh, uh, technology, so the science of technical reality or the study of technical reality as, um, as uh, the counterpart to ecumenism. Um, technology starts from the plurality of, of different uh, technical spheres and uh, it, uh, as he puts it, uh, he operates a, con a conversion towards unity, um, whereas ecumenism starts from unity and allows uh, for the accomplishment of a possible conversion toward a plurality of social and political integration. So each of these sides is, uh, is thought in relation to their integration within culture, uh, and in particular, their integration at the level of the technical ensemble being un united with social and political thought. So the ecumenism uh, operates, uh, purifies the religious traditions uh, and unifies them, but only in order uh, or for the sake of um, the integration uh, of religion in the form of social and political thought with uh, technical uh, ensembles. And then on the other side, technology um, sort of strips away the, the particularities of each uh, sphere of techniques uh, and all the, um, you know, like the, the specific vocabulary uh, and so on. Um, uh, and then it brings about a unification of these uh, uh, the the plural um, the plurality of different technical spheres, right? And uh, so sixty one has has put in the chat here. Uh, so ecumenicism and technology both are movements between the one and the many. Um, yeah. So there's a, a sort of converse movement um, in each in each case between one and many. Um, so the the um, technology uh, moves from the many to the one, and the uh, um, in the sphere of religion, we move from the, the one to the many. All right, I think we can go to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. However, 
in order for philosophical thought to be able to perform the integration of the sense of techniques into culture, it is not enough that it applies itself to culture outside philosophy, strictly speaking, as it could accomplish a limited task out of duty. Because of the reflexivity of thought, any philosophical activity is also a reformation of the mode of knowledge and reverberates within the theory of knowledge. In turn, becoming aware of the genetic aspect of technicity must lead philosophical thought to address the problem of the relations between concept, intuition, and idea, and correlatively to correct the meaning of nominalism and of realism. It is not enough, indeed, to say that technical operation provides the paradigm of an essentially inductive thinking, whereas religious contemplation provides the model for a deductive theoretical thinking. This double paradigmatism is not limited to the sciences. It extends to philosophical reflection by providing it with the modes of knowledge that can be used and transposed onto other domains. Furthermore, the technical operation and religious contemplation provide the implicit axiomatic for all subsequent knowledge. There is indeed a link uniting the mode of knowledge by concept, intuition, or idea to the implicit axiomatic this implicit axiomatic is constituted by the relation that exists between the reality to be known and the knowing subject, that is, by the primary status of the reality to be known. Technical thought indeed provides the model for the intelligibility of the elements taken one by one in their combination and of their mutual relations that are constitu constitutive of the ensemble. The real to be known resides at the end of the effort for knowledge. It is not a mass given all at once in its totality made of elements because it is knowable as a combination of elements. This reality is essentially an object, conversely being the paradigm of detective thought. Religious thought starts from a function of the whole instantly recognized as having unconditional value and which can only be made explicit, but not constructed and produced by the thinking subject. Religious thought provides the model for the contemplation of being, for a respective being that can never fully resolve itself in knowledge, but for which a certain representation can be formed. The knowledge and the subject who receives it remaining complete inferior to res in re with respect to being. It is in fact being that is the true subject and the only complete subject. The subject of knowledge is only a secondary subject by reference to the first and by participation in it. Knowledge is conceived as an imperfect doubling of being because the subject of knowledge is not the true subject. This contemplative mode of knowledge is the basis for idealist realism and philosophy. The Eidos is a view of being, a structure of being that exists for itself before being thought it is not essentially, and from the start, an instrument of knowledge. It is, first of all, a structure of being. It is only secondarily and by way of participation that it becomes a representation in the soul by virtue of a relationship <laughs> kinship between the soul and the ideas. It is neither formed nor constructed by the subject. There is no genesis of knowledge, only the discovery of the real by the mind esprit. Knowledge is an imitation of being because being is essentially subject within itself prior to any awareness by the secondary and imperfect subject that is man. For an example of such a metaphysical axiomatic, one can reference the one governing the theory of knowledge in Plato. The good is absolute and first subject. It is what structures the plurality of ideas. 
none of which can be entirely subject for itself, insofar as it is this or that idea. The good is the metaphysical translation of the function of totality as subject, higher to and higher than definite knowledge, guarantee of the intelligibility of this knowledge and of its validity. All knowledge is in a certain sense knowledge of the good, not in itself directly, but indirectly and by reflection. For what makes knowledge be through the idea is being's totality as one absolute subject to what which all effort of particular knowledge is a movement of ascendance. The knowledge of man carries out in the opposite direction, the ontological path, going from the good to objects through ideas, going up from objects to the ideas of which they are the objects, and from the ideas to the good according to the analogical relation. All right, thanks for reading that uh, giant paragraph. I totally didn't know that was uh, happening. Right, so there's a lot in the those uh, that the one giant paragraph and the small one before it. So maybe we can go through it sort of um, uh, in order as as we go through it. Um, right. So he starts with um, with the the role of philosophical thought um, as incorporating techniques into culture, um, but um, he he sort of rejects um, another sort of image of how this could come about, which would be for philosophy to apply itself to a task out of duty, as he says. Um, so uh, as uh, culture as something uh, exterior to um, to philosophy, um, and then philosophy would have this task sort of uh, applied to it. Um, so that's the model that he rejects. Um, what he argues for instead is that um, um, because of the reflexivity of thought, um, uh, the, the, it means that philosophy, in carrying out this integration of, of techniques into culture, also uh, reforms itself. It, uh, so philosophy transforms itself through the process of integrating techniques into culture. Um, um, and um, yeah, so it, uh, it transforms uh, uh, in becoming aware of the genetic aspect of technicity uh, um, philosophy uh, transforms itself and um, transforms the theory of knowledge and the relationship between the concept, the intuition, and idea. Um, and then that leads him into this uh, sort of uh, digression or, or development on, on the idea of nominalism and realism. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll leave it there for, for that first paragraph. Right, so then he goes into this uh, the second giant paragraph. Um, so he starts. Um, so he's he's qualifying something that he had stated earlier. So he it was uh, in the previous chapter, I think, um, when he talks about uh, the way that technical operation is uh, essentially inductive, whereas um, um, uh, religious thought is essentially deductive, or is the model for deductive thinking. Um, so then he's he's sort of qualifying what he has stated earlier, um, and uh, he wants to um, extend this into the sphere of philosophy. So within philosophical thought, um, there is, uh, um, how does he put it, right, this uh, double paradigmatism, um, it also applies to philosophy. 
Um, and so the modes of knowledge that appear in philosophy um, are, are modeled on um, uh, the technical operation and religious contemplation. Um, so the, uh, there's this implicit axiomatic, which is a kind of uh, um, paradoxical concept, I think, but um, there's a, an underlying structure of thought um, which is borrowed from the sphere of technical operation or of religious thinking. Um, which uh, is is applied in philosophy to understand the relationship between the knowledge and and the thing known. Um, uh, so, on a, a translation note, uh, throughout this paragraph, they they use the, the term being, um, but I think in some cases it would make more sense to say the being. Um, um, let's see if I can find an example. Um, Right, so uh, about two-thirds down the page, uh, religious thought provides the model for the contemplation of being for a respective being that can never fully resolve itself in knowledge, uh, et cetera. So I think in, in both of those cases, it would make more sense to respect of a being uh, for respect of, of the being that can never resolve itself in knowledge. So he's not talking about uh, being qua being uh, in the sort of Aristotelian sense. So he's talking about... Uh, an entity, namely uh, the, the divinity that uh, is uh, contemplated in religious thought. Oh, how about the being at the end of that sentence? Yeah, I think it would also be uh, better to translate it as the being. Um, so it, it, the being in a sense of the entity. Um, so he, he's referring to... Um, uh, the way that religious thought contemplates um, uh, a divinity. And then again, in, in the following sentence, it is in fact the being that is the true subject and the only complete subject. So the being or, or the entity. Everyone's quiet in this part. Uh, I guess I'm, uh, for my part, I'm a bit tired. It's uh, close to uh, midnight here in Turkey. Right. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Um, it's hard to uh, it's hard to find times that work for everyone across different time zones. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you're um, sticking with us, even though it's late. Um, yeah. So uh, we're we're nearing the end of our uh, time limit. So I think we can end with this uh, paragraph, but I do want to try to go through a little bit more of uh, his discussion of, of Plato um, uh, or of Platonic metaphysics, um, which uh, he seems to be drawing primarily from the, the, the passage in the Republic on the forms and, and the good and so on. Um, um, but um, yeah, what, what does everyone think of that? Uh, passage, this, this portion of the paragraph where he talks about platonic metaphysics of knowledge. Uh, it would be good to, um, I guess, uh, start with this um, paragraph again next time. Izzy, would you like to read it again? Yeah, no, we, uh, I think uh, it probably would be a good idea to, to restart with this paragraph next time um, because there's a lot in it. Um, um, 
so yeah, we can uh, uh, go through it again. Um, and it might be useful uh, to, to go back to that earlier passage, which I think was in the previous chapter where he talked about um, the um, the way that technical operation is the, the paradigm for um, inductive thinking and religious contemplation is the paradigm for deductive thinking. Um, it might be worth uh, going back to that passage and trying to uh, uh, you know see exactly what he says there and compare it to what he says here. Uh, that would probably be useful as well. Doesn't look like it. Okay, so uh, thank you everyone for joining us uh, and for your contributions. Um, yeah, and I uh, hope to see you all next week. <laughs>